or to the cloud. Hopefully it works. Works well. Got it. All my notes are on this phone, but it's okay. No, I, I think it'll be okay. The, the gift, yeah, the Holy Spirit. The, the gift is that some, uh, some weeks, I'll choose a passage and every morning on the Bowery Mission, we'll look at a different aspect of it and really dwell in it. So hopefully this last week has really seasoned me well to share. The story that we come to today is from John's Gospel, chapter 21. It's the last chapter of John. And it's what John says is the third resurrection uh, sighting of Jesus. The first one was with Mary, who was outside of the tomb, and she was so grieved. And she assumes this person is the gardener. And then all of a sudden, the gardener says, Mary. And she says, Rabbi, which means teacher. And that's the first witness. And then not long after Jesus appears in the locked room where the disciples, the apostles, those nearest to Jesus were gathered, they were hiding and they were scared because their movement leader, their rabbi, had been arrested, abused, and executed by Roman authorities. And they knew that the authorities that took their leader would also be after them soon, and they were right in that. All of them but John suffered an early, untimely death by, by execution. Um, and so they're, they're in this room, and, and they're locked away, and Jesus appears to them. And then flash forward to the scene that we find ourselves in today. The disciples were young. They were between the age of 13 or so and early 20s. Peter was the oldest. He was a householder. He was married. He had his mother-in-law who lived with him. We hear stories, hints of stories about the household life of Peter throughout the Gospels. But he is likely the oldest, or at least one of the oldest. And that's why he's often uh, assumed a position of leadership. He was one of the oldest among a very young group of boys or children who are following Jesus. It's just the custom of the time is a disciple, a student would be um, of that age to follow a rabbi and to glean the teachings. And so we come to our story today and they've left the locked room and they're now by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And they're probably deep in nature, hidden away, not having so much fear of the authorities or that someone will come and arrest them and, and, and take them away and cause them harm. But they're in a safe place. And the scripture says that at night, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Peter was a fisherman. He loved fishing. He came from a family of, of fishermen. And this was his thing. And the other said, we're going with you. They'd been through a lot in the last week. They'd lost their, their Lord, their rabbi. They'd seen the resurrected Jesus. They had all of these mixture of emotions and feelings, hope and awe and fear and trepidation and the complexity of all, all that they were holding in their bodies and in their hearts and in their minds. And so they said, let's go fishing. 
And they go out and they're out there for quite a long time and they don't catch anything. Then finally, around daybreak, the scripture tells us, there's a figure on the shore. And the figure says, children, you haven't caught anything, have you? It could be translated as boys, but it's young people. He's calling out to. And Peter replies back, no. And Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. And so they throw the net on the other side and they catch all of these fish. 153 fish. Now, John likes to speak in code sometimes and, and with symbolic language sometimes, if we assume, which some don't, but generally the church does, perhaps incorrectly, but that John wrote both the gospel and the revelation. And if he did, then he definitely uses symbolic language sometimes. And this number 153, it only comes up in one place in the entirety of the Bible, and it's First Chronicles 17. Solomon had taken some sort of a census, and it says, there are this number of people in the tribe of Naphtali, there's this number of people in the tribe of Judah, and he goes through the census. And in the end, he says, and there's 153,000 People who are foreigners or sojourners, strangers or refugees. And he says, and now they're enfolded with us. They become part of us now. So I believe this is perhaps what John is pointing to. He's pointing to this radical inclusion and acceptance and invitation to participate in this new life. And it says that these fish were big says they were large fish. And it also says that the net that held them, it wasn't torn. There's something about that. To hold the largeness of these fish, the quantity of these fish, and yet it was never torn. And so they're catching all of these fish. They're still on the boat. And the one whom Jesus loved. And does anyone know which apostle that is? Any guesses? Yes, exactly. The one who wrote the book. Just like Moses writing at the end of the books of Moses. Um, he was the most humble one who ever lived. You know? <laughs> Someone may have written that, you know, posthumously. And uh, so John, the, the, the one that Jesus loved, he looks to the shore and he sees this figure and he hears the voice and they're all wondering, who is this? And John blurts out, it's the Lord. He has this joy and this enthusiasm. And not to be surpassed, Peter, full of excitement, and the scripture tell, tells us he's unclothed. We don't know why. Maybe first century Judean youth went fishing in this way. But he, but he has no clothes. And he jumps into the water. And he swims to the shore. He's only about 100 yards away from shore. And Jesus is there. And he has the charcoal already burning, and there's fish on it, and there's bread, and he offers him a piece of fish, invites him to the warmth. And then finally, his, his friends, the other disciples, show up on the shore. They, they row ashore, and he says, bring me some of those big fish. And he begins to cook it, and it's early morning. 
and they're gathered around the fire. And they've just witnessed this fishing miracle. If you ever go fishing, there are sometimes miracles. And this is a fishing miracle. And they're probably talking with one another, excited and joyful. Some are probably still bringing in the boat in. Some are perhaps cleaning fish. And they're eating. And some time passes, and it's, it's after breakfast now. And he's sitting with Peter, the assumed leader. And they're sitting there, and he says to Peter, he goes, Peter, you love me more than these? And it's assumed he's talking about fish. That's a, a lot of scholars and commentators assume that Peter, the fisherman, is being asked by Jesus if he loves Jesus more than he loves fish. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. Come on. You know, he goes, then, then, then feed my lambs. And I imagine even the, the disciples running around, maybe playful in their youth, even in this hidden place away from harm are seen perhaps even as lambs in this moment but also considering all the flocks that will come to Christ. And they're sitting there and some time goes on and he changes the question. He doesn't say, do you love me more than these? He now asks them plainly. He goes, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? He says, of course, I love you. I love you, he says. He says, then tend to my sheep, care for them. And then he says it a third time. And at this point, Peter is feeling very disheartened. He says, Peter, do you love me? And I imagine that Peter's thinking about how he had just betrayed Christ, denied him three times and the cock crowed. He's probably thinking about the times when he was impetuous or, or lacked vision that Christ had for his coming and the redemption of the whole world. He probably has all these questions that are plaguing his heart. He says, yes, I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? You know what I think. You know what's in my heart. And you keep asking me this. And Jesus says, Tend to my flock. And he goes a little deeper. In a sense, he's preparing Peter for what he's to expect in his life. And he tells him a quick little, not even a story. He says, when you're young, you put your belt around yourself and you go about your day and do whatever you want to do. When you get older, someone's going to put a belt around you and they're going to take you and tell you where you don't even want to go. And then in the little notes, it says, he said this to speak of the kind of death that he would experience to glorify God. Jesus has already been executed and resurrected. His life, death, and resurrection is already a glory unto God. He's speaking about what is to come for Peter. Because as I was sharing earlier, all but John the Revelator will suffer an untimely death.
And he's just listening. Peter's just listening to Jesus. And this whole section closes with him saying to Peter, saying, follow me so plainly. As Anabaptists, as a people with, with a history of, of martyr stories, yet in a context of, of America and American Christianity and how this religion is the dominant religion and is used to espouse violence and, and, and hateful rhetoric and division, how might we lean into this invitation to follow Jesus, to really love Jesus? What parts of ourselves must perish or, or decay or fall into ruins? What parts of ourselves must die if we are to live fully in Christ? I don't know. We wrestle with these things, and it's unique for each of us. And the Holy Spirit will minister to us. And in that time, when God calls us to follow, the Holy Spirit will reveal for us the ways in which we are being invited to follow. It may be no grave persecution. It may just be a time where we decide to disrupt cycles and patterns of violence, whether through interpersonal communication or through ways that we think and perceive of other cultures or ourselves. We know what the Holy Spirit needs to do in our life. Will we surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about that redemption, that we might live into that newness? So may we follow Jesus this day and in all days for all our life. Amen.